G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Dardit. Today is Tuesday, the 25th of July, and our topics this week are... Traditional owners want $3 billion green hydrogen plan in Western Australia. And the government... Uh, to close loophole allowing employers to treat casual workers like permanent employees without benefits. Of course, we have our two ticks town talk, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our date and finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, we wanted to shout out some of the countries from around the world where our listeners are located. So this week, we wanted to say, G'day, how you going? To all of our listeners in our native Australia, of course, <laughs> it's nice to reach out into the world and speak these new and interesting languages, but we cannot forget about our native Australian listeners located right here. Ardi, how are you today? What's going on? <laughs> G'day, DK. At least I don't have to worry about the accent on that one. Yeah, I'm traveling traveling all right. Just had my... Um ass handed to me by a number of older people at pickleball to today uh yeah look you know i've gone i've gone past the stage where i can say oh, i'm just a beginner because i've been playing for a, a few months now but some of these uh some of these older men and women who have been there for a while bloody hell yeah there's there's times where i just think how the how the hell did you get that ball to go there so uh-huh. Yeah, look, it's 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 always good to be humbled. Yeah, you learn a bit more, and everyone there is 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 friendly, and they they sort of share it and tell me where I went wrong, and I'm always happy to hear that. That's that's good. I've got to throw the ego to one one side and listen because they obviously know what they they're doing. So yeah, that, that's good. That's always a nice experience. And but yeah, I've just been settling in. Uh, I think I mentioned to everyone that I'd gone up to Sydney last week. Uh, from mother's mother's birthday and uh just getting back into the groove of things down in here with the the garden and um i've been able to do much mowing it's been a little bit a little bit too wet and i've had other things on well i did go to the uh the working bee at the the pistol club and without going into boring details about the usual machinations of c- committees uh <laughs> We uh, we were spending the we were spending the uh, the working bee moving a whole lot of uh, huge bloody bits of uh, sleepers and wood for where we're we're patching up a wall as a temporary um, way to open the range because things got delayed because of internal things uh, and th- the range is getting an update. It required walls getting knocked down, but with walls being knocked down, it's no longer a valid range, so you can't shoot. There's all uh. the attendances. So, yeah, so on Saturday, I lifted more bloody beams of wood than I've lifted for a long, long time. Not since I was, not since I did the uh, probably not since I did the uh, the builder's labourer. I've lifted that much bloody wood. It was good, you know. It was it was good to sort of give a give a little bit, as you know from uh, you know things you're involved with. So long as everyone puts in a, a little bit, you tend to get something done as a a group. So yeah, 
that's yeah, that's what I've been up to. What about you? Oh, cool. We've had um, my daughter turned five last week, oh. and so we had five-year-olds party over the weekend, uh, which is very full-on. A bunch of five-year-old, <laughs> five and four-year-old girls, primarily running around, dressed as fairies. Um, it's definitely, yeah, pretty full on. Uh, whereas I was very comfortable standing behind the barbecue, uh, with my fairy wings on, I will add, uh, tending, tending the barbecue and, uh, sipping on a couple of beers. So all the fun was had by all. Um, did you have fairy bread? We did have fairy bread. Well, I didn't have fairy bread, but fairy bread was available. Yes. Um, (laughs) It was available, and uh, yeah, all the kids loved it. It was funny because last year, uh, one of my wife's friends, uh, she, her daughter's about just just a little bit younger than my daughter, and uh, she at the party last year, she just scoffed all the fairy bread. It was so funny because <laughs> um, she's absolutely tiny, and we were just like, "Where are you? Where are you putting it?" You know. And her mum was like, "Oh, you you gotta you know stop, leave some for someone else." And we we're just like, "Go for it if you if you want it, yeah, you, you know." Um, and she just scoffed it. And this year we were like, "We made extra just for you, so you can have like a little plate by yourself." And funny enough, she didn't really didn't care too much for the fairy breads. So I was kind of a bit. I was oh okay. So the fairy bread did all get eaten, but it was eaten by other people. Uh, it wasn't scoffed by one this year, but. It was very cute, nonetheless. Watching them all run around, um, you know, pretending to be fairies and put spells on each other. And I was turned into a frog many, many times, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> so, no, it was good fun, but very tiring. We came home and I was like, I think it's time for a nap um, after a, a, a big morning. So the, the good thing about little kids' parties is they generally don't go for that long. They only go, right. you know. Once the sugar starts running out, <laughs> yeah, they the all crash. <laughs> yeah, they all crash, crash pretty hard. So they all sort of skedaddle pretty quickly. So they don't normally only go for a couple of hours, which is good. So, well, it's probably probably long enough for you. You know, and look, I, as, as you know, I don't have don't have kids, but I'm just wondering about this. Is there? Yeah, how you have those um, uh, biscuit cutters, those things you press into the dough. Yep. Is there one where you can actually press into the bread and cut out fairy wings for your fairy bread? Um, you can basically use those biscuit cutters on on bread. As long as the bread's fresh, it'll cut straight through. So, yeah, you could. Um, we didn't because we just had so much other stuff to do that it was oh, kind of sure. like, yeah. yeah, yeah no, I wasn't, this... wasn't loading you up with a, t- a task, but just when you, you said <laughs> that, I, yeah. I wondered. We previously have like um, you know the heart one is always a big hit and, uh, and and all those sorts of ones. So you try to go not too intricate. It doesn't quite translate as well onto the bread as it does say like a cookie or something like that. So yeah, um, the yeah. the bold shapes work quite well though. So just like a circle or or any of those basic shapes work quite well. I think you. I don't know that we've got a fairy wing run, but I'm sure you probably could get one, and I think that would work quite well actually. Right. Right, of course. And then it could course, be as soon as real fairy bread. The, the, I, I said biscuit cutter. Tried to avoid saying cookie cutter, but bugger it. Yeah, so as soon as <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could get the cookie cutter for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same difference. Oh, very good. Oh, I'm glad. Oh, I'm glad you had a good time. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. 
Speaking of uh, having a good time and enjoying yourself, Aboriginal owners and energy investors have teamed up in a plan for a $3 billion green hydrogen plant in Western Australia. A particularly unique partnership between three traditional owners groups and a major clean energy investor is proposing to establish a $3 billion green hydrogen project in the far north of Western Australia. In what could be one of Australia's biggest clean energy projects, more than half a million solar panels will power uh, electrolyzers to produce 500, sorry, 50,000 tonnes of green hydrogen a year. That's a lot. I assume that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I don't have <laughs> any. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I don't have anything to compare it to. Uh, but half a million solar panels certainly is a lot. The East Kimberley Clean Energy Project was unveiled at the Australian Renewable Energies Industry Annual Summit in Sydney last Tuesday. A new company, Aboriginal Clean Energy, will develop the ambitious project near the town of... Now, I may mispronounce this, and I apologise to anyone that is uh, knows how this is pronounced, but I think it's... Kananara? Uh, Kananara? Kananara. I've heard of Kananara. Yeah. yeah. Three Indigenous groups will each have an initial 25% share in the company alongside climate crisis investment and advisory firm Pollination. The head of the project at Pollination, Rob Grant, said that the company's structure engages traditional owners as true collaborators, developers, and beneficiaries and represented just ambitious an achievable vision for clean energy projects in Australia. The feasibility and capital raising for the project is still yet to be completed, but Grant said that the partnership was hoping to start construction in late 2025, with the first hydrogen produced by late 2028. The project will look to use renewable energy from existing hydroelectric facility near the Ord River to turn the green hydrogen into 2,000. 250,000 tonnes of green ammonia each year for agricultural fertilisers to be sold in Australia and for export. The plan includes a new 120-kilometre pipeline to store and transport green ammonia to the export-ready port of Wyndham. Grant said that the region provides sunlight, clean water and renewable energy, the main components needed for green hydrogen, which is extracted from the water by electrolysis. Ammonia production is currently heavy, heavily reliant on fossil fuels. Producing green ammonia from green hydrogen would be a major step to decarbonizing the food chain. Traditional owner groups MG Corporation, the Kimberley Land Council, and again, I'm going to apologize. I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but I believe it's Balangara. Oh, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> Balangara, I think it is pronounced, Balangara Aboriginal Corporation will each own 25% of the company. The conventional model for major projects on Indigenous land in Australia sees developers seeking permission from native title holders with the payment of royalties. Those agreements usually come at the end of projects and historically they have been um, disruptive rather than inclusive, Grant said. 
Grant says that the new project's ownership structure turned that old approach on its head and represented a just, ambitious and achievable vision for Australia's clean energy future. Aboriginal clean energy's share in the project will probably dilute once agreements are reached with investors and industrial partners. But having a partnership approach which traditional owners would be an attractive prospect for investors, Grant said, and it reduced the risk of future problems with land use agreements and other approvals. This should reduce the risk for investors and shorten the development schedule. I'd agree with him on that, but we might put a pin in that and come back to it. Yep. The chief executive of Kimberley Land Council, Tyrone Garstone, said Australia said for Australia to meet its international climate commitments, a lot of the projects will have to happen on Indigenous land. He said that the heart of the Aboriginal Clean Energy Partnership is that traditional owners will have the opportunity to have equity in the company to ensure that there are flow-on benefits. Garstone pointed to the tragedy of Gukan Gorge, where Rio Tinto blew up a 46,000-year-old cave site as they expanded the iron mine. It was quite infamous from a few years ago. Mm. We can't, and he says, we can't just keep going along with the same processes that we have followed through the dirty energy revolution that have delivered a pittance to traditional owners. We need something radically different. The planned 900 megawatt solar farm, which if built today would be the biggest in Australia, and the hydrogen production facility will be built on MG Corporation freehold land. The executive chair of MG Corporation, Lawford Benning, said all the company's activities must be, and I quote, sustainable and intergenerational and aim to connect culture and land. A focus on First Nations economic empowerments has led groups like ours to reject the historic passive engagement model of receiving royalties for agreeing to give up control of our lands. Mm. I love this. Yeah, yeah, I like I like that too. You you you're, you sound a bit fired up by that. Go go for it. <laughs> because. It's it's they've hit in my opinion they've hit the nail on the head. This is a group of First Nations people. Uh, three different nations are coming together. They don't want to, you know, as we've seen in lots of other parts of Australia. Uh, I was actually reading an article about the closure of a mine up in just outside of Darwin is spelling a huge tragedy for the local community because. Effectively, the community there relies on the royalties from that mine um, to fund basically everything they have in that community. Unfortunately, with the end of the royalties means the end of a lot of um, a lot of the people are paid. basically their their income is is sort of like a passive income that comes from royalties from from the ownership of the land um and that's going to dry up and and that was always going to be the case um so now they they sort of you know they do have a, a pretty significant investment fund up there so they're not completely going to be stranded or anything like that and of course all of those people still qualify for regular government assistance that all Australian citizens are eligible for uh, but you know they the community elders have basically said we need to 
the, the royalties will end, I think, in the next five to 10 years. So they're looking at it now going, we need to start actually investing this money in our community so that once those royalties end, we're not completely up the creek. Um, this is a different way to look at it. And I think, and again, I should... I should explain as well, the, the the example I was talking about in Darwin, those people actually didn't have a choice. Uh, the royalties were paid way, way after the mine was first built and everything like that. Um, okay. Initially, they were basically, the land was just basically taken from them. Uh, too bad, so sad from these international mining companies. And it was only later on that royalties were paid and back paid and all this kind of stuff. So for right. them, the outcome has been very, very positive. Um, but this is a different approach from the beginning, uh, which I think is really, really important because the community is going to be integrated uh, into this company and and the whole structure of it is very much got them on board uh from the get-go and that also like he said uh going back to to what grant said was those um like land rights and things have definitely held up a lot of developments in the past and it can get really really messy and that can drag on for years and years and years and years and years um, and, and, you know, and cost an absolute fortune. So the fact that that's never going to be an issue in this situation because the landholders already have a stake in the development of this scheme is hugely beneficial. I also think they're not going to have a problem getting investors on board because there's a lot of younger people like myself that are quite uh, they care about how ethical their investments are and stuff like that. Mm. There are investment funds that are deliberately set up for green investing and ethical investing and things like that. This is an absolute tick on the board of what those sort of people are looking for. So I don't think they're going to have a problem with funding. My only problem with this is just the sheer scale of this scheme. Absolutely huge. Nine hundred. Absolutely big. It's the biggest solar I did, farm. I did want to throw a correction to you. You, you said almost half a million. Uh, my reading of um, an article on this was that it was actually a million. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. 900 megawatt solar farm is absolutely huge. Mm. You don't have anything like that in Australia. Um, and part of me goes... I would love to see this get off the ground just because of because of the scale of it. Because they go, you know, none of this, they're not reinventing the wheel. None of this is new stuff. This is all no. off the shelf type stuff. So there's no reason yep. that they can't do it. Um, and I kind of, I'm a little bit skeptical because of the scale of it, but at the same time, I'm also kind of like, Good on them because it, this is huge. They're not pulling punches. They're shooting for the moon. Um, mm. And I, I kind of really like that. Yeah, look, the proof of the pudding is going to be in actually delivering it. And I, I know I, I didn't didn't note down who it was in uh, the r slash Australian subreddit who commented that the uh, elect the uh, electrolyzer. What what was that word? Uh, whatever the thing that does the electrolysis that was going to be you know, X percent bigger than anything in uh, Australia. So there was a bit of scepticism about that. But yeah, this is, apparent- this- Go on. 
uh, about 800 times bigger than the biggest one in Australia. Oh, 800. Okay. <laughs> it's more than just a little bit. But this is yeah. this. We've we've discussed uh, we've discussed the visions for Australia previously in in other episodes of Australia. Our disappointment at the lack of vision of a number of uh, you know, and and bureaucrats. This is a large project that potentially can set the bar higher for everyone across the uh, across Australia not only in the the size and what used but also you know, uh, what the the agreements are different with various um, groups around Australia but this one where it's sort of where it's a case of no we're not just going to get the royalties we're going to be actively involved and, and high level shareholders that's that's why I let you go on that one I thought that was a very a, a very positive development to hear yeah, and and this sort of comes on the curtails of the green energy commitment that the Albanese government has already made. We already know that this government is keen to develop green hydrogen in Australia. We want to become a world leader in this market. So this screams to me like a a huge opportunity to, to take advantage of of incentives and government subsidies and all of that kind of stuff, yep. you know, th this is more of what the government, this current government administration, wants to see. They want to see this sort of investment, and this is a double whammy for them because it also includes, uh, you know, traditional owners being involved in development of local community, like real rural, um, uh, quite isolated communities and things like that. So. I look at this and go, this this is a win-win on in every direction as far as I'm concerned, especially, you know, they're talking about the green hydrogen, but also they're talking about um, ammonia exports, which is huge for, for fertilizer for... Um, well, my understanding every, is green hydrogen the world. is making the, the, the green hydrogen is getting used for the ammonia. I mean, look, the, yes. the, climate, the, the, the climate change participation medals are... Um, on the stage, I, I wouldn't give us that. I have a very low opinion of of that, but I do have a very high opinion of of moving to renewables and clean energy because I simply don't like pollution, and I think it's the next stage, and I think it's uh, I, I think it's a sensible way to go. And one of the things about green hydrogen is it's often just put uh, this uh, one way to to move a source of energy to you know a, another a, another medium for transport but it can be used as a fuel it can be used for manufacturing ammonia fertilizers um, it can be used in the petrochemical industry to produce petroleum products uh, it's also starting to be used in the the steel industry that is underway on replacing the natural gas network with with green hydrogen network now look there's there's still got issues with this with regards to how do you roll it out um, production costs uh, optimizing its storage and uh, deploying the 
the the infrastructure. But I mean, there's always there's always those big hurdles that people who don't have the vision of the future try. Yeah, but yeah, but unless you actually do it, the problem first. I understand that there's some issues with green hydrogen. You know, I've heard the na- heard the naysayers and. It may turn out to be completely wrong. I, I can accept that. But unless you give it a crack and give it a crack on a decent scale on something like this, you're never going to know and you're never going to learn. And Australia, which has the advantage of all the areas where we can have solar and wind, as well as nuclear, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of nuclear and I think this is something that can be incorporated in this, but just using the, the, uh, the other uh, clean energy, Energy light reward. As an example, you don't get the learning. So I'm I'm very positive on this. Yeah, I think you've you've made a good point there. The fact that you know, if you don't dream big, nothing's going to happen. You know, it's easy to um, just play it safe and and just you know, oh, we'll, we'll just build another coal-fired power plant, something like that. Um, that that's that's sure. Uh, that's an easy, safe thing to do. But that's not, you know, that's more of the same. What they're trying to do is something completely different. They're trying to uh, look. There's a lot of land out there. There's a lot of sun. Um, we can. There, you could easily build. Um, uh, sorry, how big did we say it was? A 900, 900 megawatt solar farm. You could build a 900 megawatt solar farm in, in a lot of Australia and it would do well. Um, yep. The fact that we don't have one here in Australia kind of annoys me a little bit because uh, <laughs> most of the country is a frigging desert. So <laughs> why are we not utilising free energy from the sun? I mean... I know rooftop solar yep. is very, very popular in Australia. Um, there are, of course, solar farms, but they are on a smaller scale. Uh, this is the sort of vision. And also, you know, if if this works out and they're able to do this, which there is no reason they shouldn't be able to, um, then this will open the gateways to other projects like this, or even the fact it's that like they're breaking, serious. Breaking the four minute mile. Exactly. And, you know, once that ice is broken, everyone yep. can start getting through. And I think, you know, this isn't the only group that's looking at doing these sorts of things. And this isn't the only group of First Nations that are looking at doing things like this as well. And I think that's really, really positive uh, for the future of this country, the future of of all Australians, uh, especially at the moment as we're struggling with power bills and gas bills and things like that. Um, I'm very lucky. I live in sunny, sunny Queensland where – and I have solar on my roof and I, I do produce most of the power that I use. Um, and then we just sit in the darkness at nighttime. <laughs> so, so we don't use any power. Um, no, not quite. But, but, um, uh, but, but, you know, our, Burning our, a tallow our, candle and your kids have got the little gold bowl up there exactly, saying, please, Dad, exactly. can I have some more? <laughs> when, the, when the power goes out, if we ever have a power outage, we, we don't know. Um, 
but but you know, in all seriousness, I'm very lucky here, and I realise that that's not the case for a lot of Australians. Where you know, even in the the southern states, you just you just don't power, you don't produce enough power to really use you know offset that bill, and there's there is a large cost to it, and blah 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 blah. But there is areas in every state and territory in Australia where there's a lot of sun. There's a lot of land. We're not short on land, and we could build these sorts of infrastructure projects basically anywhere in Australia. Um, and I think it's really, really awesome to see uh, these guys uh, having a huge ambitious project. Um, is that 2028 deadline a little bit ambitious? Probably, if I'm honest. I, I think it'll be a little bit longer than that, but maybe not. Again, none of the stuff that they're talking about is new. This is all existing existing um, infrastructure. Basically, all of this is off-the-shelf components. So as much well, as I'm to, a little bit skeptical... To back to our, our fairy bread, it's, it's cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it's almost it's trivial it, to, to yep. a certain extent. So um, there's nothing to say they couldn't. I just think a three-year timeline, because they're, they're looking to start construction at the end of 2025, I just think a three-year con- construction pipeline uh, is probably a little bit ambitious, but maybe not. Um, and I, who knows? Depends what depends what type of people they have on the the, the project. You know, you you have. I, I'm not going to again. I'm not going to pretend I've got any expertise expertise here. But if you have a if you have a team that is used to uh, building solar farms, you have another team that's used to building pipelines, and you're uh, maybe having to get the expertise up on the uh, electrolysis side. It's nothing to say they can't work in in parallel. And look, you know, projects like this, it's it's not unusual to hear them uh, hear that they've run over. But you can, it's certainly achievable. And you you made it that is. comment about the, the yeah. south. I, I'll just t- with um, coming back from um, when we drive back from from Sydney, probably about. I can't remember what it is. It's a hundred k's or something south of Albury. I might be a little bit out on that. There was a, a solar farm put up there, and you know it was several several hectares uh, a, a few years ago. And then because we drive up and down, a, a, you know, intermittently throughout the year, I notice oh, there's there's another one that's that's gone up. And over the last couple of years, it's just expanded. And I think looking on Google Maps, it might be a couple of different entities doing it and i don't know there must be something to do with with sun and wind and and lack of hail and that round there that makes it particularly good but coming back this particular time from from sydney somebody's obviously said right we know how to to do this and it looks like they've decided to double this massive expanse of panels and just looking at it you can see that it's all just Count out the rows, throw the th- throw the pegs into the, the the ground, put the posts in, the panels on. You could see the panels were already there to to load. Um, the panels that had already been done had sheep grazing between them to keep the the grass down. And I looked at that and I thought, thought that's just that's just growing with no effort whatsoever. And it gets mm. back to to what you're saying that you can these things can happen. Yeah, absolutely. What and and I guess part of my skepticism 
about that timeline, not not the project altogether. It's just I was looking at the the uh, the export ready port of Wyndham uh, in WA, uh, and I don't know if they're currently exporting from there. I think they may be doing some some small stuff, but it's yep. not much of a. It's not a huge industrial port as it exists right now. And I would imagine that piece of infrastructure may have to be upgraded as well. And that would probably slow things down a little bit. But all things considered, there is nothing, there's nothing in this plan that really screams, uh, you know, unachievable or anything like that. Um, you know, as we've said several times now, all of the stuff is off-the-shelf components. They just got to put them all together. You need some good project managers, project leads, to basically yeah. just put it all together and get it done. Um, so this is going to be one of those cool things that I think moving forward. Hopefully, you know, we may come back and revisit this, and you know, in a few years, and hopefully the answer the, the answer will be that it's it's uh, it's all up and running in. Uh, we're using it to create green ammonia and maybe even surplus, and they're exporting it all. Blah blah blah. Don't know, but yeah, um, yeah, all very, all, all potentially exceedingly positive. Exactly, exactly. So I think it's time for our two ticks town talk. So this week we're heading. South from uh, where we were talking, Kananara, uh, we're heading south to the state of New South Wales, southeast, I guess, from where we were just a minute ago. This one is actually a slightly bigger town than we normally talk about. It's got a population of 11,197 uh, as of 2021, and it's about 150 kilometers west of Sydney. Uh, it's about 95 miles for our Americans. Uh, and it's also got a name that some of our international listeners may recognize, the little town of Lithgow. It's located in a mountain valley named Lithgow's Valley <laughs> by John Oxley in honour of William Lithgow, the first Auditor General of New South Wales. The town is situated in the centre of a gold, a coal mining district. Sorry, not gold, coal. Black gold, as they call it. Uh, and there was, there is one coal-powered station nearby. It's the site of the f Australia's first commercially viable steel mill and the ruins of which are open for inspection at Blast Furnace Park. Uh, due to the abundance of coal and the relative proximity to Sydney in the areas surrounding Lithgow is one of the largest power stations in New South Wales, the Mount Piper Power Station, which opened in 1993 and is still in operation. Obviously, there were lots of other power stations uh, in that area, but most of them since have been shut down. Uh, Lithgow is adjacent to a number of national parks and other attractions, including the Blue Mountains. Uh, places to visit include the Zigzag Railway, the Glow Worm Tunnel, and Glen Davis in the Capertree Valley, the second largest canyon in the world. I guess the first what? is probably in America. Yeah, the Caper Tree, Caper Tea Valley is apparently is the second largest valley in the world. 
you kidding me? I, I'm just going off what uh, Visit oh, so, New so, South oh, no, Wales. Sorry, that was, that was a very incredulous... <laughs> I don't know. You're kidding, you're kidding. It was just... Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think we would have that here. No, yeah, I was kind of surprised myself. Uh, and <laughs> I think it's pronounced the Cap- Capiti Valley. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Um, yeah, just outside of Lithgow, bet- wow. near the Blue Mountains. It's the second largest. It is, when you look at a picture of it, it is very wide. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't quite look like the, 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 you know, the Grand Canyon um, or anything like that, but it does, it is, yeah, it looks pretty, pretty, um, Impressive is the word I'm looking oh, for. I so, at that. you know, it's about a kilometre wide sort of thing, and I don't know how how high the cliffs are. They do look very, very um, tall. So, huh. uh, I probably you would have thought that I would have done a little bit more research so I could give you some numbers, but I didn't. So, no, you probably didn't expect <laughs> to be pulled up so so much. It's it's just yeah, like you hear you hear the Kiwis chuckle when Australians call something a mountain over here. Um, yes. Just if you'd, if you'd have said second largest Kenyan in the world, wouldn't have even had Australia on the top 20 list. No, you're right. I think it's when you look at it, you know, so there is uh, a campground. Um, so Glen Davis is the town that's sort of in in that specific valley itself. Uh, and there's a sort of, if you follow the valley up, there's a there's a campground. And where the campground is, the valley, the, well, the canyon, I should call it, not a valley, um, is just over a kilometre wide. So when you look at some photos and things of the area, it, it they look like mountains. It doesn't look like a canyon because, you know, it's covered in trees and everything like that. Um, and because it is so wide, I guess it doesn't really feel like, it feels more like a valley as opposed to a canyon but um i don't know what the the difference the designation is between those two things but apparently it's a canyon um it is pretty impressive when you look at from the air Uh, i think it would be much more impressive in real life uh i haven't been to the grand canyon so i can't compare the two uh but my dad has so maybe we'll send him down there on a road trip and he can tell us what he thinks (laughs) uh so the most popular tourist event in Lithgow is called Iron Fest. Uh, It's an annual cultural heritage event, and it attracts about 10,000 people every year, so it's pretty cool. Uh, But, of course, the elephant in the room is that there is also the internationally known uh, and Australian-renowned Lithgow Small Arms Factory. Opened on the 8th of June... 1912, the factory initially manufactured the short magazine Lee Enfield Number no. 3 rifles and the patent 1907 bayonets for the Australian military during the First World War. During World War II, production expanded to include Vickers machine guns, bread guns, and post-war, they branched out into sporting goods, including civilian firearms and even golf clubs, tools, sewing machines. And from the mid-50s, they they manufactured the F1 submachine guns and the L1A1 SLR firearms prototypes and other similar products. The factory was first corporatized as the Australian Defence Industries by the Hawke government and then later sold in 2006. 
ADI Lithgow is now owned by Talus Australia and continues to manufacture the F88 Ausstire rifle and their M89 Minimi, currently used by the Australian military. Uh, and they still do make civilian firearms. They make a lot of really good rifles. They're not the cheapest, but they are exceptionally high quality, and they're Australian-made, which is pretty cool as well. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's how you pronounce that. Is it Minimi? Minimi, yeah. yeah. Okay. So for our American listeners, it's the same as the, um, uh, what is it, the F240 Bravo, and I think... A bunch of different companies use them. Uh, the 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 Minimi is the original name for it, um, FN Minimi, and uh, the Ozstyre is basically the Og for anyone that's familiar with like Call of Duty and other video games, uh, <laughs> and uh, an Austrian designed rifle. Um, very very good, very very light bullpup. Uh, I I personally really really like it. I wish I could have one, but Australian gun laws and all that. Lithgow yeah. is also <laughs> yeah. We'll move on from that. Lithgow yes. also has a number of notable residents, uh, past residents I should say, including but not limited to, and in no particular order, uh, Laurie Oakes, which is a journalist. He was oh. lived in in uh, Lithgow. Uh, Marjorie Jackson Nielsen. She's a former athlete and Olympic gold medalist. She was known as the Lithgow Flash and later became the governor of South Australia. So she was raised in Lithgow. She wasn't, she wasn't born there, but she was raised there. They moved there when she was an infant. Uh, Roy Heffernan, he was a professional wrestler, tag team champions, the famous kangaroos. He was also Mr. Australia, and he was born in Lithgow in 1925. Jordan Shanks, who's known as AKA Friendly Geordies, he's an Australian comedian and political YouTuber. Uh, Marty Roebuck, uh, former Australian rugby union, the Wallabies fullback, he was born in Lithgow. Ben Reynolds, he was an Australian Rugby League player. He played for West Tigers and I think the Panthers. Uh, Joseph Cook was an English-Australian politician. He lived in Lithgow and was the member for Hartley and Parramatta, and then he became the sixth Prime Minister of Australia. And to round this all out, Dear to my heart, there is also a local zigzag brewery where they've brewed beer since the 25th of July, 1888. That's 135 wow. years to the day. They're still open. Unfortunately, I don't oh. think they're open to the public anymore, um, but they still brew. They have six beers that they brew. Um, I actually haven't tried one, but I'm, I'm very keen to I was going to, to ask you now. that if you've, if you've tried any from that brewery. Not that I know of, um, but I'll definitely keep an eye out for it now because um, I'd love to, to give their brew a go. But I'm so glad oh. that they're still on operation. 135 years, that's definitely to be celebrated in Australia. We don't have many things that are that old that are continuing. So, wow. so that is the little town of Lithgow. Well, that's interesting. That's, a, that's interesting about the Kenyan. That uh, being being around there, I had a, a quick look while you were 
reading out the next bit and it seemed to get into technicalities on technic on um canyons versus valleys and to do with steepness and that and i to be honest i, oh, yeah. I lost i lost interest i was more interested <laughs> your eyes glazed over <laughs> yeah, i was more interested in listening to to you uh, I, I just thought a, a quick glance might have revealed something and that was an extraordinary amount of uh people's mm-hmm. names who i recognize because oftentimes you go through these towns and you think mm-hmm. you know i who the hell is that? Oh, you know. In fact, I can't even remember what. I can't even remember the town. Was it Seymour or Shepparton? And and one of their entry signs. And I'm not going to say it's Seymour or Shepparton. I could be completely maligning them. And I've seen ones like that. And I think sorry, oh, you ca- you cut out for a second. That oh, so I was I was saying that there's some um, towns I've been through that they have the uh, people who are famous in there and one had um that I've I've been through had a home to two Paralympians and not even mentioning their names. And I'm thinking uh, I didn't know. Whereas what you said with Lithgow, I um I recognize a lot of those names. Yeah, and I gotta shout out the uh visit New South Wales dot com uh website was really helpful for this. Give me some ideas about what to see and do around the little town of Lithgow. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of towns, but I thought something close to Sydney uh, was probably a good idea. Just uh, for for people for a, you know, there's a lot of people. I used to live in Sydney myself, and you just can get so caught up in the city and you don't don't get out and go and see and all that sort of stuff. So if you're listening and you do live in Sydney. Get out to the Blue Mountains. They're bloody stunning, and it's yep. worth having a look around. There's a lot of history out there. Uh, and, you know, maybe pop into the little town of Lithgow. Well, little. It's not really that little. Um, and see some of the um, <laughs> see some of the, some of the sites. Have a couple of beers. Go to the, uh, go to, to the uh, Lithgow Small Arms Museum. They have a museum on site at the Small Arms Factory. Uh, go see the blast furnace, the old blast furnace. And just it sounds like a fun little weekend away from Sydney, if I'm honest. So uh, it, it sounds good. It was funny coming back from the because uh, we had family over in uh, in in Forbes. Uh, coming back, we would sometimes stop at when we were younger. Stop on uh, there was a lookout at the Blue Mountains, and uh, Dad would sort of point out. He said, "Can you see the curvature of the Earth?" And because you were high up and had such a good view, you could just see a faint actual like curving of the horizon. So yeah, it was always interesting. So look, that's, you're right. Get get cool. get past the mountains. Get out. That's it. Get out. Go and see this beautiful country. It's too easy to get cooped up inside and yep. you know. Uh on especially on the weekends. Don't waste your weekends. Get out while you can. Uh, speaking of people trying to get out of things, the government is <laughs> going to close loopholes that have been allowing employers to treat casual workers like em- permanent employees without benefits. More than 850,000 casuals who work regular hours will have a new pathway to permanent work under a proposed industrial relations changes set to be introduced into the parliament later this year. Workplace Relations Minister Tony Burke 
uh, is going to outline, this was yesterday, more details regarding Labor's pre-election promise to legislate a new definition for who is classed as quote-unquote casual. The government says the change closes a legal loophole that keeps some people classified as casuals despite working regular permanent hours, giving them access to leave entitlements and more financial security. So for our international listeners or for people that never worked casual and don't really understand what we're talking about here, just to give a bit of, bit of background information, in Australia, there's, there's generally three different types of employed contracts you can have. One of them is casual, uh, where you do, do not receive any uh, entitlements like sick leave, holiday pay, things like that. You generally paid a little bit more uh, as a result, but you can be terminated with 24 hours notice and you can also terminate your employment contract with 24 hours notice uh, and your working hours are not specifically contracted to be any set number of hours. Whereas if you're a part, on a part-time contract or you will have those those benefits, sick leave, holiday pay, carers pay, those sorts of things, um, and a set amount of hours, same as permanent full-time contract. Uh, however, of course, a full-time contract is more than a part-time contract. So uh, this affected me when I was younger. I had a casual, quote-unquote, casual employment contract. However, I was working more than 40 hours a week in that in that respect for actually for several years on this particular contract. So this would have definitely affected oh. me. And I, and I, I actually asked them to become a, to go on to a permanent contract. Uh, they didn't want my employer at the time basically refused uh, and said that they didn't want to be locked into a contract. Uh, and that really rubbed me the long wrong way. And I actually ended up leaving that, that job uh, because not under the best circumstances, mm. basically because my employer refused to, to give me the benefits that I should have been entitled to at the time. Uh, so coming back to, to this, Mr. Burke says that some employers were double dipping by treating casual workers like permanent employees without benef- giving them the benefits of secure employment. He said many casuals won't want a permanent job. If you're a student or just working a casual job to make some extra money, this change won't matter to you. But there are casual workers who are trying to support households. They're being used as though they're permanent workers and the employer is double dipping, taking all the advantages of a reliable workforce and not providing any of the job security in return. That loophole needs to be closed. While hundreds of thousands of workers will be eligible to convert to the permanency, Mr. Burke's speech insists that the choice would be for the workers to decide, while those who make the conversion will not get back pay. No casual will be forced into losing their loading, Mr. Burke said. No casual will be forced to become a permanent employee. But for those who desperately want security and are being rostered as though they are permanent, for the first time, job security will be in sight. The proposed uh, the proposed change would reverse the definition of casual work introduced by the former coalition government and reinforced in a high court ruling. However, the government said it will keep much of the existing framework that unions and business groups agree should not change, including a rule that requires employers to offer eligible casual employees permanent work after 12 months. 
The new definition of casual will form part of a broader suite of workplace relations measures set to be introduced to the parliament later this year, aimed at improving worker conditions and pay. The Australian Council of Trade Unions has been calling for common sense definition of casual work, arguing that current law diminishes the right of workers. The ACTU Secretary Sally McManus said it allows employers to write whatever they want in a contract. And so even if you've got regular hours every single day, week in and week out, they they can say that you're casual. That is not right objectively. It's not right. So we want that to be fixed. Business groups who earlier this year launched a media campaign opposing lasers, same job, same pay proposal, have also argued against the change to the definition of casual work, which they say is unnecessary. The situation at the moment provides very clear certainty to both employers and to employees. There is a pathway to conversion. Andrew McKellar, the chief executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry has said the employment relationship is based fundamentally on the contract that you enter into the start of that employment relationship. It works for small business. It works for many employees. In fact, Mm. given the opportunity to convert from a casual employment to a permanent employment, we find that in practice, it's only about one to two percent of people that make that choice. Now, I'd agree with him to an extent. I think it would be a lot more than one or two percent. Uh, I think as the chief executive of the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, of course he's going to say something like that. Um, but mm, I think I think it is worth remembering that, generally speaking, casual employment, uh, casual contracts are given to what we, you know, we would generally call unskilled labour. So, you know, a lot of service jobs, a lot of retail stuff, um, a lot of hospitality type things. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the people in those positions, st- unfortunately, a lot of them don't know exactly the rights. A lot of them are young and a lot of them are kind of desperate for for a job that um, because there is a lot of turnover in those industries as well. Mm. Um, and so as much as he says, oh, there's the employment relationship is based on the contract and, you know, you can enter this uh, and you can say no and things like that. Um, unfortunately, for a lot of people, the reality is they're living paycheck to paycheck. The power balance between employer-employee is with the employer. And just like, you know, anecdotally, in my example, um, I basically was asking for, well, I was, I was asking for a permanent employment contract uh, and that employer made a lot of excuses uh, and didn't honour that end of the relationship. So I was fortunately in the position where I could leave and look for different employment options. Uh, That's not a reality for a lot of people. There are a lot of people, especially in this economy, that don't have that choice, that don't have the means to just go, okay, stuff it, I'm going to leave. Um, and I think it's it's kind of disrespectful to a lot of those people to suggest that they have that choice because a lot of these people, they don't have that choice and that's why they're asking for the security of the employment 
of the permanent employment contract because that's what they need. You know, we saw this with COVID where a lot of these guys, a lot of these service industries, a lot of retail workers, these guys were hit the hardest and they're all on casual contracts. They don't get anything as soon as they leave that business. If they're sick mm. for a week, if they have to take two weeks off work, they can't. Financially, a lot of them can't do that. They're living paycheck to paycheck. And so um, I think there's going to be a lot of them that don't go onto permanent employment contracts because of the loading they get. So they do get more money in their hand as a result. Um, yep. I think there is going to be a lot of them that go, I can't, I would like to change over to a permanent employment contract, but I can't take the hit to my pocket. So I'll have to, I'll have no choice to stay as casual. That's a bit unfortunate, and I think there's probably going to be more more of them than not, if I'm honest. Um, but there's going to be – I think it's nice that the the option is now available to these employees. If they want it, it's there. It's part of their rights, and they can get it. Well, going to be going to be available. I mean, there's, there's the rule that whatever it was with that, after 12 months um – yeah, up to twelve months, and you and you yeah. have to be rostered on as yeah. So they, you know, in eleven months, eleven and a half months, your roster might change, and you might be ineligible. Um, well, look, maybe, and that, yeah, that's one of the issues. I've got. Look, I, I, I'm in two minds about this. Um, this one, my my free market side says that employers and employees should be able to set their own terms. Without some, you know, bureaucrat in Canberra being involved, in my in my heart, that's that's what I believe and would want to to see. However, the fact is, the bureaucrats are corrupting this market, and there is a reasonable argument that the spirit of the rules means treating casuals as permanents, but not paying and benefiting them according them. Uh, sorry, not paying and benefiting them accordingly is against those rules and needs to be rectified. So if you've if you've mucked up the market, stuck your finger into it and changed things, then I think there's a reasonable argument to say, look, we're entitled to make sure the rules make things even one way or other. Look, for, for me, unfortunately, the trap is that the solution, in, in quotes, to poor rules nearly always seems to be more rules rather than removing them and getting bureaucracy out the out of the way. However, accepting the system for what it is, uh, I tend to think they've got a very good argument because it's like you're not playing by the spirit of the game. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a good way to sum it up. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people, you know, and I can't stress this enough, but, you know, everyone that I... So, when I left school, mo myself and most of my friends had casual jobs that we work, you know, on the weekends and after school some days and stuff like that. Um, and th these were like first job type stuff, like, you know, working in an ice cream shop or, or basic retail, stuff like that, you know, entry-level jobs. Um but once we left school, you know, in, I think it was end of November or something like that, by um, the new year, a lot of us were basically working those jobs full time. Um, and some, some of us stayed in those jobs for a couple of years. 
But none, as far as I know, not a single one of us was ever offered a permanent contract because it basically it's just unheard of in, in some of those basic retail type jobs. They just don't have permanent. And, and look, I, I do understand there's definitely an argument to be made from a, a small business owner where cash flow and income can be a bit, you know, especially like something like an ice cream shop, right? Um, it can be very seasonal. It can be very um, come and go and it can be a bit unpredictable. And so having a permanent employee can be a burden to that business um, because you may, you know, you basically may not need that person uh, if, if times get tough. Um, and it definitely complicates things moving forward. So I do get where, you know, small businesses probably saying, you know, we don't like this because we don't want, um, we want to have the flexibility to do what, what our business needs. Yeah, I get that. It is, it is difficult to get rid of a permanent person. You know, exactly. You, you can't, you, you, someone can leave, but you can't just get rid of someone. So, and this is what I mean about interfering with the, the rules and sort of corrupting the, the market. But, you know, I, I tend to be more in sympathy for what you're saying. Yeah. But at the same time, I think that's more the exception than the rule. I think that's a good example of a situation where, um, you know, that small business owner is going to have to be mindful moving forward about how they do the rostering and things like that. And their reliable staff that, that, that they genuinely need to run their business, they're going to have to be mindful about, you know, how they proceed moving forward in terms of their employment relationship with that person. However, yep. that's not often the... That's not really what this is targeted at. This is more targeted at some of the larger establishments, you know, large restaurants, things like that, some of the bigger businesses that are basically, for all intents and purposes, they are taking advantage of some of their employees um, and they're not giving them the security. And I think it's a bit of, you know, I kind of feel like this is a little bit of that Australian fair go type mentality yep. of, yep. you know, do the right thing by your employee because they're the ones that make you the money. At the end of the day, um, you know, th they're part of your business and they should be entitled to a little bit of security and making someone uh, that's worked for you over a year in a full-time position a, a proper permanent employee isn't going to sink, you know, it's not going to sink businesses. Small businesses will adapt and cope. I just think, you know, this is kind of one of those things that I'm surprised it's taken this long for it to really happen. Um, I'm glad that it is because I think it is it is something that needed to happen. Um, and it just comes back to a bit of that fair go mentality that I think Australia's lost a little bit of um, in recent history. Yeah, look, I do... I, I do I – look, maybe this is facts versus feelings things, but I do tend to feel that way. Um, there's a lot of things like that that have been lost around the, the world and I, I feel like that's a fair comment to, yeah, what's what's been lost lost here. It's, it's, just, been, it's just been a change over, you know, a, a, a long – 
time, you know, a period of several decades, and in the end, you take that, you go back to use that expression, take that that thousand view of the situation, you think, ah, oh, you know what, the work has really been monumentally screwed here by you know the people in charge and um, also the uh, you know, a lot of larger corporations. So, yeah, I, look, I do agree with you. It has. I know it's it's it has it has been a bit of a change from what um, what was historically how we tended to do things, and if I'm going a bit on feelings here, I don't really care. <laughs> you got you gotten soft. I'm, I'm rubbing off on you. I'm rubbing oh, off on yeah. you. Oh, no, oh god, I could feel that was coming up, but I I do feel that way. I do I do look at how how things. How things were, yeah. You know, I'm very, very clear. I have that. Uh, I have more of a free market. I have more of a few free market view. But when I'm looking, I'm thinking, well, hang on. It's like two ganging up against one in this this case. You know, the the the, the bureaucrats and the the companies that pay and lobby and influence them, and that just wrinkles me. So yeah, I I, I agree. Australian Australians treat things like different way history and i reckon the last 45 yeah. years that has that has changed so, it's definitely been eroded away i feel like yep, our culture is a perfect a perfect word for it hasn't been a sudden change it's been eroded yeah and it's it's like i say you know it's that that fair go mentality because remember they, yep. they, well, they're not they're asking for some some smaller benefits, but also a pay cut. I, I can't stress this yep. enough. The casual rate loading, they get paid more money for being yep. a casual. So there are going to be a lot of them that go, no, I don't want to be. I don't want to be permanent. I'm happy with what how my thing is, and that's fine. But the reality is, is some of these casual employees have been casual employees for years and years and years, and they've got kids and they've got mortgages because that's the other thing if you're a casual employee trying to get finance for a car or for yes. a house yep is very yep. very difficult because the banks look at you and go well you can be terminated in 24 hours notice uh you know you don't have any job security you don't have any income security your roster exactly. can change so yep. all of those things and i think it's those people that are really this law is really aimed at and just giving the choice to the employee uh which so often you know used to be the case and these days it's not so we need to get back to our roots a little bit more yeah look you're you're, you're right so get back to our roots get back to well i suppose we threw through in history let's uh let's use that as a, a, a segue to this week in Australian history. I come from a land, land, land. Okay, this week I'm covering 20th of July to 26th of July. July 20th, 1972, police in Canberra disassemble the Aboriginal tent embassy and, and arrest protests. It's re-October and it's still up there. I so we're up in Canberra really. for yeah yeah oh definitely still up there. Uh, uh, when were we up there? The beginning of this year, end of last year, or something. There was a um, political cartoons exhibition on, and something something else. And yeah, the Ten Embassy was definitely well and truly um, because the, the, the exhibition one was on at Old Parliament House, which is where the uh, the, the Ten Embassy. 
uh, is is near. And yeah, still still going strong, still set up there, still uh, still holding the ground. So that's good. Cool. Yeah. That's good. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, 1979 was the inaugural meeting of the National Farmers Federation. July 21st, 1991, the Greek tent, Greek tenter, <laughs> Greek tanker, Kirky spills 17 odd thousand tons of crude oil off the coast of West Australia. It's in waters. Don't know if you remember that. Um, yeah, it was it was no. Yeah, no, it was it was a, a very. I was uh, just a baby. <laughs> well, look, I, I suppose yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, no, I do remember it because it was. I can't remember when Exxon Valdez was, but it was around about that time that a whole lot of the the tankers. Yeah, the front fell off. Seemed bloody, <laughs> and there was something with uh, you know, the the. Uh, them being single hulled and double hulled and a whole lot of stuff like that. Funnily enough, I don't recall the last time I heard of Gilch. So, fingers yeah. crossed, it doesn't happen. Bloody oath. Uh, anytime soon. Yeah. July twenty second, eighteen seventy. A state flag of South Australia is adopted. Um, nineteen thirty eight. The Australian National War Memorial at uh, Villas Bretano. Villas Bretano. Bretano, is it? Yeah, yeah. Villas Bretano. France isn't. Uh, 1983, aviator and businessman Dick Smith completes the first solo round the world helicopter flight, which I, I remember. Uh, look, what was that, 1983? Well, God, if you didn't remember the oil spill, you're not going to re- remember bloody Dick Smith. No, not not solo. Yeah, he's a polarizing character. Yeah, I why? I I like Dick Smith, uh, but but I had no idea he was the person that did the first solo flight of a helicopter Mm. around the world. Helicopters notoriously do not have. No. <laughs> very long range. So I'm I'm going to have to look into this and see how he bloody did it because the Pacific Ocean is very, very large. Uh, and I can only imagine that he must have... Um, he must have landed on a ship or something to, to refuel. Or, uh, uh, I, I must know how he did it because that's oh, incredible. It was from, from memory, it was... It, it was a it was a clever way to do it. It wasn't necessarily the most direct route. He had certainly had some from memory. Um, it certainly had some some dangerous things, but it was almost uh, almost like going you know following land as much as he could, yet still circumnavigate the the, uh, the, that's the globe. Cool. Uh, look, yeah, that's good. Up. Uh, yeah, which which got it. I think I think it was still impressive. So yes, the electronic yeah. dick, as he called himself, or was referred. To. <laughs> yes, did he call himself or was referred to when he when he owned the Dick Smith Electronics? Yeah, and that uh, store, unfortunately, it's it, it well, it still exists, not in bricks and mortar. The Dick Smith Electronics, yeah. uh, 
it's uh, only online now and it's owned by Kogan. So everything that they sell on there is basically oh. just a copy of Kogan. So the Dick Smith, you know, he, he sold the saw many, many years ago. So he's got nothing to do with it. But yeah, last century sold it. So mm. yeah. July 23rd, 1773, Sir Thomas McDougall, McDougall, McDougall? Actually, I think it might be McDougall, Brisbane. Namesake of Brisbane is born. So that was 1773 he was born. That's that's funny. We had talked about, uh, oh, what was it? Some explorer that had named someone after his benefactor, and you said something today that they'd named it after... uh, I think it was Lithgow you said it named it after yes. someone. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that thing of, you know, let's let's name it after the uh the the person in charge of this, that, or the other. Yeah, hopefully to to curry favor or to get a bit more funding for the the next one and just the the egos that come into us as human beings. Yeah, pe- people if you said to me, I'm gonna sail halfway around the world, but I'll name the city after you. Then you know, there's a bit of me that goes, "Well, maybe." (laughs) 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 Yeah, maybe. I I can see that. Uh, July twenty third, nineteen sixteen. Arthur Seaforth Blackburn and John Leake are awarded the Victoria Cross for their separate actions at the Battle of Pozieres. Yes, very good. Uh, 1938, old Moonface himself, Bert Newton, award-winning media personality, is born. Uh, 1995, a former PM, Bob Hawke, marries his biographer, Blanche Dalpouget. So, yeah, there was a little bit of a scandal there for the old pants man and beer-guzzling Bob Hawke. Ah, uh, don't you love him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, yep. Yeah, well, there's, he, there's, well, there's, I feel there's, like, well, he was punching above his weight with Blanche, I'd have to say, because he's not uh, the best looking bloke, but he's got a certain charm to him, doesn't he? Oh, he, ha- he, he had charisma oozing out of his, his paws. Mm. So, yeah, look, let's, I'll have a read about some things of, about Bob Hawke another time. Uh, July, t- <laughs> <laughs> July 24th, 1900, uh, Neville House, or Hauser rescues a fallen ally under heavy, heavy fire during the Second Boer War, becoming the first Australian recipient of the Victoria Cross, and that was in 1900. 19, oh, God, bloody hell, I remember this one. 1983, golf champion Jack Newton loses his right arm when he walks into a spinning propeller. And uh, I noticed that in here, my understanding was he was pissed as a newt. But, um, uh, yeah, I, God. Didn't stop him playing golf, though. No, no. The, look, I got this, this one from Wikipedia, and there was a picture of him there with his um, club in his left hand, and, you know, he could – play golf better than I ever could with a, a decade of, of practice, even with his, his left hand. But, oh, can you imagine that bloody shock? As you, you know, whether, whether you're pissed or not, just walking into a freaking propeller. God. Well, to be fair, 
it was a little Cessna, I believe, and they've all got their propeller on the front. And if you can't see the propeller, it means it's spinning. So I don't know. Part of me goes, then again, I, I've, I have spent a lot of time around aircraft. So part of me goes, I don't know how he did it. But at the same time, I guess, you know, if you haven't spent a lot of time around aircraft and, you know, you had a few drinks and, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it, it obviously, you know, it happened, obviously. So, um, yeah, I've, you know, there's that scene in Indiana Jones. I can't remember which one where the guy, there's a fight near a plane with the propeller and Indiana dives under, you know, and the the, the Nazi gets chopped up and... Oh, yeah, As a kid, yeah. I watched that, and I was horrified. Um, oh. So <laughs> was, it really, I was probably too young to watch that film, <laughs> and it really freaked me out. And so, um, yeah, I have a healthy respect for aircraft, and I stay certainly quite far away from the spinny bits. Uh, but, yeah. you know, he obviously he hadn't watched Indiana Jones. If he had, maybe it would have been different. <laughs> maybe, if only. July 25th, 1916, Thomas Cook died of Pozier and was awarded the Victoria Cross for his gallantry in the face of the enemy. Another, another one. 1956, the film A Town Like Alice premieres, um, appropriately so, in Alice Springs. Um, yeah. 1994, telephone numbers throughout a Australia and changing to eight digits. So, yeah, I remember that having, I think basically they, they threw a nine in front of everything else. So, yeah. yeah July, I, I vaguely remember this, yeah. 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 I couldn't even tell you what our telephone number was now. Okay. Did you have, did you, well, I, oh, how odd. We had, we had a telephone. It was, it was in like the kitchen. And yep. it had a really long cord on it. It was hilarious. Um, oh. Sorry, we we actually we had a wall mounted one, uh, and we also had like a rotary one. Um, and I about a year ago, I actually purchased a rotary phone. It still oh. had telecom on the back and everything like that. Uh, it, they assured me it still worked. Uh, not that I have a landline that I could plug it in to use anyway. Um, and I just thought it was question. cool. Yeah. So I th just thought it was cool and that I'd, I'd just have it, you know, as a bit of, a bit of decoration. And my kids were so enamored with it. They used the dial so much, they broke it. And I was like, wow. this thing's probably 50 years old. It's been through countless how many oh. phone calls it's had. And you bloody kids broke it within like two weeks. So I could probably fix it. But for now, I'm just going to leave it because um, if I fix it, they'll probably break it again. So, <laughs> uh, so, so what, what, what possessed you to buy it? I just saw it and it looked like the one we had when I was a kid. It's sort of right. like a... Uh, I don't even know what to call it, like a sandy colour. Um, yep. And... Yep. What well, was either that yeah, sandy just... colour or green from memory? Yeah, and I just saw it and I was kind of like... It was on Facebook Marketplace and I think it was like 20 bucks and I was yep. just like, you know what, I want that. Uh, so uh, a local bloke was selling it, so I went around and picked it up from him and um, 
yeah, I didn't have a specific use for. It. I just thought it would look kind of cool, a bit of a, a bit of a, a talking point when we, mm. uh, you know, had had guests around and things like that, and they'd be like, "Oh, why have you got that?" or, or "Oh, I used to have one of those," that sort of thing. So, yeah. um, the bloody kids broke it. <laughs> <laughs> bloody kids. <laughs> bloody kids. Exactly. Exactly. July twenty sixth, 19- 39, later Prime Minister of Australia, born in, in Sydney. Um, 1950, Australia announces that it will send troops to the Korean War. And 2003, rounding off the this week in Australian history. 2000, July 26, Australian... Um, he sort of has a fairly recognisable it's a modern interpretation of the classical portrait. And there's one, um, uh, where was it, 1954 of Queen Elizabeth II is you know, a, a classic portrait of her. So if, it's one of those ones that if you, if you look him up and have a look at... Um, whole collection of you his images you'll sort there well it may not be the case for you but for for people who sort of look at a bit of art things you think oh yeah i i i recognize that you may not have been named something specific you see that it really rings a bell so that rounds out this week in australian history and as one does after that we reach for a beer for the Forex Bottle Top question. Now, I've got to ask you this first one. I don't know whether we had it or not. So if we have, I've got a, a backup one there. So I'll, okay. I'll, I'll ask the question, and if we do have it, you can either pretend that we didn't have it and that you were <laughs> amazingly able <laughs> to guess it, or they can. No, we can't. So, between which two Australian states is birds fat? I, I don't know if we've had this one. Oh, good. So, I didn't think I'm so, not, but there was something in the back of my head. Yeah, I'm not sure. The Birdsville track. Which two Australian states is the Birdsville track? I'm going to say. The Birdsville track. It's, it's Birdsville's in Western Queensland, I'm pretty sure. But the question is, it, it must be South Australia. Is it, is it between Queensland and South Australia? Is that your final answer? Oh, no, don't do that, because it might be the Territory in Queensland. It might be the Territory. Is it the territory in Queensland? No, nope, you're co- completely correct. <laughs> it's, it's Queensland and South Australia. <laughs> I was like, because I know it's Birdsville's one of those ones that's it's like way out west. Um, yeah, middle, literally middle of nowhere, like right next to the Simpson Desert. Um, so if you're going to do some of the big Simpson Desert uh, four-wheel driving tracks, Birdsville's the place to go. Um, but I'm, yeah, I was like, no, there is that bloody, what's it called? The corner. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Way what? out there where, yep. where 
Northern Territory, South Australia, and Queensland come together, you can go. I mean, there's a few of them. Um, I think it's Cameron's Corner is the one. Queensland, New South Wales, and South Australia, something like that. What's this um, called? Haddon Corner, Poeppel Corner. I think, yeah, as you said, there's, yeah. there's heaps of, of corners. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> well, when you draw your st- states with straight lines on the map, you know, yep. uh, the, the corners are a bit fun to go to. So, most of it's in the, most of it is in South Australia. It's like you go up South Australia from, uh, what do we got? Murray. Um, and you go, you head north up towards Birdsville, and comparatively, it's like the the bit of the the part of the track that's in Queensland is I don't know, make a wild estimate, it's probably about you know one twenty third of the track, not much. Oh, at okay, all. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Well, because Birdsville's not, I don't think it's far over the border. No, um, no, not at all. In fact, it's uh, not far over the border, not far. Across. Yeah, yeah, right. Because I've known a couple of guys that have done the Birdsville track, but they've done it from like starting in Queensland, so like from reverse, I guess, starting in Queensland and heading oh, okay. down into into South Australia, um, and then and then come back out. It does look like a K lol. Yeah, it looks like a cool, cool thing. I think it, depending on the time of the year and the weather, it can either be quite an easy, kind of an easy trek, or it can be absolutely horrendous. Um, it's just one of those things where it's sort of the luck of the draw. I know guys that have done it and gone, oh, it's a piece of piss, and then other blokes that have done it and go, I bloody nearly died sort of thing. So oh. it really depends on the luck of, of, of the track. Though these days I think a lot more people drive it, so... You know, if something really bad, and you, you know, satellite phones and all that sort of stuff. So if something really did go go poorly, uh, yeah. it wouldn't be too hard to to sort yourself out. So that's that's true. Um, but you can never, even with that, uh, you can never take it for granted when you're heading in the the outback. Uh, definitely, you still not. you still have to be prepared because you know if you, if you're relying on something like a a mobile phone or a satellite phone, and something goes wrong with that. And that's your only um, safety or preparedness precaution. Well, it's a stupid thing to do. You've, you've got to you've got to assume that you have to be able to look after yourself and hope that you never have to use it. Absolutely. So there's a lot of things you can do, including, you know, there's recommendations for carrying like hand flares, yep. uh, even like a flare gun, uh, smoke smoke flares as well. Um, you can get uh, similar to what, uh, but they're basically the same thing as what boats use uh, in in the marine world. They're called epurbs. Um, yep. I think I think they just call them a geolocator or something like that in the forward driving world. Uh, you can basically get the same thing, and then that pings a satellite, and then that you know, goes and tells you, tells someone where you are and that you need assistance. And there's, there's lots of ways these days. Um, there's no excuse for people getting, you know, if, you, as they say, if you, if you prepare to, f- if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. So, um, there's no excuse, but, uh, getting off road, getting out there and seeing this beautiful country is a lot of fun. Just got to be a little bit, a little bit mindful about what you're doing and don't be, don't be silly. Yeah, don't um, take it for granted. Exactly, and, yeah. and you know something happens. Yeah, stay, stay with your EPIRB, Stay with your your car. Um, 
don't go bloody wandering off because t- people that tend to have the most problems are the ones who convince themselves that somehow they're going to be able to make it to yeah, unrealistically to some next destination or they're going to be able to find something out there in the, the middle of nowhere. You're not, you know, stay, stay with, stay with your vehicle um, and yeah, try and conserve your energy. And the best thing to do as well is, and what we often do when we go into remote areas is go on a convoy, go with a friend, uh, mm. go with a four-wheel driving club, lots of four-wheel drive clubs around, uh, and, you know, that way you can also spread the load of equipment. You may not have a, a geolocator, but maybe one of the other guys does. Mm. Um, things like that, obviously, spare water, rations, blah, 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 blah. But yeah. go, as, go as a team. It's a lot more fun. Uh, you get to share the experience, uh, learn with friends, get out into the great outdoors, sleep under the stars. Uh, not a lot of rain out there unless it rains, at which time it is a lot of rain. It, it very much, it very much, um, it won't rain for years and years and years, and then it will rain all of those years' rains all at once. Um, and it's it's horrendous. I think the Birdsville track basically turns into a river. Um it's it's really full on. So, uh, yeah, just be prepared, all that stuff, all that good stuff. And on that, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe, subscribe and give us an honest review as it helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember... At r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you and good night. Thanks, DK. See ya. See ya.